Yes, as Rian's just said, we're going to continue with our Mountaintop Wisdom series. Uh, we've already covered um, chapter 5, 1 through to 30. Um, and we're now going to be um, continuing from verse 31. Um, must admit, I'm glad you're all here. Having had Kath last week say how glad she was, but she didn't have this bit to read from. <laughs> and also that I gave you a sneak preview of what we might be talking about today. Um, I did wonder if some of you might think this week would be a good week to go and do something else. Yeah. But I'm glad you're here. No um, For further context as well, I would actually recommend, um, if you get a chance, um, just go and go onto the church website and have a look at what the other sites have been saying um, from this series as well, because there's so much packed into this teaching. Um, and there's so many little facets that you can pull out from the Sermon on the Mount. And so, obviously, I can't cover everything within these verses that I've been given. And, you know, I'll think differently to the way Richard will look at it and think about it. And then John will look at it in a different way. And God will put different things on our hearts for different communities. But, you know, getting the context of the whole Sermon on the Mount and looking at it from across all the sides. And I really recommend doing it because there's been some fabulous teaching um, from amongst us. Um. So yeah, so let's have a look at Matthew 5. I'm just going to read the, the first little bit to start off with, and um, verses 31 and 32. And it says this, It was said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman, commits adultery now <laughs> it's very easy to spend the amount of time that I've just spent looking through these verses to sit and focus on divorce but I'm so glad I've had the chance to read these verses because the more I've looked at it the more I'd realised how fantastic marriage is. What a wonderful gift it is um, to us from God. And, you know, just how it's such a beautiful picture of God's relationship with his church. Um, so, yes, it is a, a heavy subject today. But I ask that you'll have some grace of me as I, I talk about it. And, and also, I just want to say that, you know, when Jesus talks about this, there's no condemnation here. We have, in this room, there will be people that have been affected by divorce, either directly or indirectly. And, you know, there is no condemnation um, in the kingdom. So, like I say, just, I ask that you have a bit of grace with me as we as I talk about this. I know that my heart is for every person in this room um, today. So, it's understandable that following talking about lust... Jesus would lead into adultery um, and then he would then move into divorce and the law around it. But when we look at these verses, we shouldn't be looking at it as Jesus's prescription for divorce. Um, his emphasis here isn't on um, the reason he can get divorced, um, but it's God's heart that no marriage should fail um, and that no one should need to get divorces. In these verses, Jesus not, does not condemn those who were divorced previously and all have, sorry, does not condemn those who are currently divorced or have previously been divorced. Jesus is full of grace. 
And we've all made mistakes. And if it wasn't for Jesus' compassion to us, we would have been utterly ruined by the mistakes we've made. But even still, just like with hate and lust, Jesus sets a standard for us to aim for. And the thing is, the standard for marriage is success. Jesus wants us to have success. Marriage isn't about survival. So, having looked at those verses, later on in the book of Matthew, and Jesus again challenged by the Pharisees on marriage itself. Um, maybe some of the Pharisees there had been at the mount when Jesus preached, or had heard secondhand these radical teachings. Um, but his response to them expands on his teaching that we hear in the Sermon on the Mount. And it says this, um, sorry, let's go back to that. 19, yeah. Um, and the Pharisees came to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, have you not read that he created them from the beginning, made them male and female, and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And they said to him, Why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said, Because of your hardness of heart. Moses allows you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Now, at this time, there was a massive debate raging on amongst the Jewish community. And there were these two rival schools of thought that had come up around divorce. The first, which, um, and these were from Deuteronomy um, 24, verse 1, which says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if, he then, if she then finds no favour in his eyes, because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. And it was all around this, these verses in Deuteronomy. And the load to the debate was around this word, indecency, and what that word meant. In some translations, it, it says the word is unseemly. And it was being interpreted in two different ways, predominantly. First of all, indecency was seen that a wife had been unfaithful in some way, whether she had had sex before they had got married or had committed adultery during the marriage. The second um, reason that was given, or the second school of thought, was that basically indecency could mean anything. Reasons that had been given for divorce around this time were things like, obviously, infidelity, um, that your wife turned out actually to be a bit of a liar or a gossip maybe um that she had turned out that actually as she got older she wasn't quite as good looking in your eyes um or even that and this is probably my favorite reason if i can call it that <laughs> an acceptable excuse for divorce was if your wife spoiled your meal Good mood. 
So the Pharisees are coming to Jesus and saying, basically, whose side are you on in this debate? And his reply is not to directly answer their question straight away. Um, he's not saying when it's permissible divorce, but he refers them back to scripture. Um, and when I looked at this, it actually reminded me of when um, Jesus is um, tempted by the devil um, before he starts his ministry. And every time the devil says something, Jesus replies with, it's written. And he does this to the Pharisees, and he takes them back to Genesis, and he shows them um, how important marriage is. Um, and through it, he takes them through the process, and he says, look, marriage is exclusive. It's a man and his wife. It's not a man and a wife and a wife. It's not a wife and a wife and a man. It's, oh, that's the same thing, is it? Just, two men and a wife. However you want to put it. And also, that it's not two, but one flesh. They're joined together. It's also permanent, the whole farms, and let no man separate. And it's also divine. That even though it's a union between a man and a woman, God is involved in that marriage. And he seals it, and it's confirmed by him. And with Jesus refusing to side with either side of the debate, the Pharisees then challenge him again, looking at this point of the permanence of marriage, asking... Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate for divorce? And Jesus responds by pointing out, it's not a command, but it's a concession. Because of the hardness of a human heart. And that sometimes, due to a specific act, the covenant of the marriage becomes broken. Um, Paul, later in the New Testament, um, concedes that a Christian is permitted to divorce because of abandonment. As if their master, partner wasn't a Christian, um, and they no longer to be part of the relationship, then Paul had permitted that the, um, the marriage could be, um, could be ended. And also, you know, we know that if, if someone's been abused by their spouse, we wouldn't expect them to, to stay in that marriage because the covenant is being broken by the act of abuse and that that person would be free to be to remarry um, if they were being abused and the marriage covenant was broken in that way. But overall, at this time, unfortunately then, as it can be now, people were getting divorced far too easily. The covenant of marriage was being taken lightly Excuses were found and marriages were broken. Now, no one says marriage is easy. And if they do, I'd like to even <laughs> how they find marriage so easy. Because it takes work and it takes love. And when we look at the gifts we're given by the Holy Spirit, we know that a good marriage is full of glory, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And if we see those things in our marriages, then they will grow and they will blossom. But if we ever find those things missing from our marriages, we really need to get help. And I'd say, you know, start by speaking to your partner. If you're finding that there's no joy in your marriage, then please speak to your partner. 
Because you're finding that um, there's no peace in your marriage. Steep. And it's going to be the hardest, scariest question you'll ever ask. Because what if that answer's no? And if you just ask if it's okay, and they say no, then you need to look for more help. Try and reconcile it amongst yourselves, of course. But there will there may be a time when you need outside help in your relationship. So then seek out a mature brother or sister in Christ, you know, one of your friends, someone else from within the church, someone that you trust to speak into your marriage. Um, and then, unfortunately, if it's then still struggling, go and see the church leaders. Because uh, often, by the time the church leaders, you know, you get people coming to them, it's already too late. Um, what unfortunately happens is people turn up and say, look, we think our marriage is over, we've separated, we're getting divorced. And the heart has already been decided. And, but I can tell you now, any church leader would rather have an entire queue of people at their door asking for help than a single couple turning up and saying, we're separated and you're getting divorced. So don't wait things get to the point of no return. Ask for help, please. Ask for help. It's what leaders are called to do. It's what we're called to do amongst each other is to disciple and pastor each other. And, and it's, you know, the church leadership, it's, it's the role to help us grow, help us flourish and help us to become more Christ-like in every area of our life, which includes our marriages. And so I'll just say one final thing to you about marriage before I do move on to the rest of these passages. And let's help each other. Some couples get into trouble without even realizing it. Um, and so let's look at each other. Let's look out for each other. And um, I'm not saying going around pointing fingers, you know, I'll point over here. In a marriage, I promise. <laughs> that's, that's not what we're asked to do. But just ask if things are okay, you know. If you spot that there's some tension in a marriage, say, you know, is there a problem? Um, and just be there, ready to listen and to help each other. Because it's a lot easier to help someone build their marriage than it is to rebuild it. Hey? Okay? Oats. Through me. Let's move all to oaths, because it feels like it's a nice easy subject. A little palate cleanser before we then move on to loving our enemies, okay? <laughs> so, uh, Matthew 5, verse 3 says this. Again, you've upset it. Sorry, you've heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord with what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his bookstore. Or borrow Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. They also didn't have just for men, have they? And let what you say be simply yes or no. 
Anything more than this comes from evil. So in our culture today, you know, we're not the sort of people that, you know, swear lots of oaths. You've really got to like them. It, and it feels like this is a bit of a less of an issue for us. But in Jesus' time, um, yeah, so, you know, in Jesus' time, oaths were sworn a lot for things. Um, and, you know, we can even look back through our literature and see that oaths was something that was, you know, quite commonplace. If you look at the language of, say, Shakespeare or Chaucer, you might get someone saying, I swear by the sun, the moon, the stars, the heavens, that I love you. And that my love for you, he never swears. But unless you've been to court, either as a witness or as a defendant, then unless you've been to court, or get sworn in as the next American president, you may never be asked to swear on the Bible. But let's again just scratch the surface um, and take out the meaning behind these verses. Um, so let's start by thinking back to Jesus this time um, and imagine for a moment that I'm a Jewish farmer. Um, and I've got a dog key, really good dog um, and it's super useful for me every day. I use my donkey's pull carts around my farm, um, and it, I've got a wagon on the back where I put my olives in, and then I take all my olives down to the market twice a week, and then everything that I buy at the market, I use my donkey to bring it all back to my farm. However, one morning, I've opened up the stated door, and my donkey's gone missing. Where did my donkey go? <laughs> and as I look across my field, in the distance, I can see James's farmhouse. And I know that he has always wanted my monkey. And I know that he has now broken one of the Ten Commands, as he has coveted my donkey. So I still moment to James's farm, and I demand the return of Dominic. Yes. I'm the dog <laughs> But of course, he denies everything, as he would. <laughs> so now, what can I do? Well, I go to the Jewish council. I go to the local Jewish council. And I tell up to them. Now, if I was just to say, James stole my donkey, they may go, well, what evidence have you got? However, I rock up at the council and I say, I start to ramp up the re rhetoric around this stolen donkey. And I swear that he has stolen my donkey. I swear on the name of Yahweh he has stolen the MP. I swear on the name of Yahweh and on the city of Jerusalem that he has stolen my donkey. There is absolutely no chance that he has not stolen my donkey. So what am I doing then? I'm dragging God's name into this dispute. And I'm using it to leverage on my claim. I'm trying to claim, make it more um, serious and truthful than it actually is. Trying to persuade these elders to take action on my behalf. Anyhow, the elders do a quick investigation and they find out actually James hasn't told my dog, taken my dog it. Could be next. Actually, Graham took my dog Why? Shy. However, <laughs> what had happened 
was that a few weeks ago, I'd actually said to Graham, of course you can borrow my donkey. I know you'll look after my donkey because you look after yours, Lord. And so Graham took my word on that, and I'd said to him, you can take it whenever you want. Just, you know, come get it, take it. And that morning, he didn't want to wake me up because it was really early, and he knew that I liked my sleep. So he'd take my donkey, and he thought he'd have it back anyway before I'd started to notice it was gone. So in this situation, what has happened is I've used God's name in vain, and therefore his authority in this situation to make a false claim against my neighbour. And in doing that, I've defiled the name of God. I've sworn that I'm telling the truth and that God is backing me up. And I've myself broken one of the Ten Commandments because I have taken the Lord's name in vain. Um, and the Lord won't hold me guiltless because I've taken his name in vain. So I'm now in a whole heap of trouble. So, just like in Jewish culture, to avoid fisting, breaking commandment, so for so in the Jewish culture, to avoid risking breaking the calf commandment and taking the Lord's name in vain, they started slaying other things. Things that they could associate with God, but not the actual name of God itself. They would swear on heaven, earth, sun, moon, the hairs and the heads. Things created by God, but not God himself. And even though they were not taking God's name in vain, they were still trying to take him take on some of God's authority and apply it to the words to make them sound more important. The thing is, the more people did, the more people did this, um, the more they swore on things and, you know, tried to elevate the words they were saying, the more apparent it became that everything else they said couldn't be trusted. Because if I'm swearing now that this is definitely me dead and true, this is definitely me being as honest as possible. What about all the other times when I don't just swear? So Jesus just comes in, slaps it down and says, look, stop doing this. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. And stop using to improve other people towards your selfish needs. Okay. You still with me? Uh, yeah. Good. Retaliation. And also loving our enemies. Like all the other verses around these chapters that have been looked at, you can't really look at them in isolation. You use each bit to follow on from the previous one. And although it's great having the different headings in our Bibles, they can actually sort of chop it up more than it needs to be. So with retaliation and loving our enemy, enemies, it's actually something that we could just put together as one big um, subject. Um, so let's have a quick read through these verses. And then starting in verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would see you and take their tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Just stop there. That is one of the weirdest things I've ever heard. <laughs> and you come for a walk with me? Yeah, okay. What that's referring to 
is there was actually a law at the time for Roman soldiers. A Roman soldier could demand that any Jewish person could carry their bag for them for up to one mile. So if you imagine it's the Sabbath, and you're sat down just minding your business, and suddenly this Roman soldier rocks up next to you with their massive backpack and said, boy, you, come on, you're carrying this to me, and making you break the Sabbath laws for carriage and deeds. It's not nice. So, anyway, after that. Um, give to one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and said rains on the just and on the unjust. For you love those... For if you love those who love you, and what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing? Um, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, I don't know how many people here have been such close to face, but it's not a nice experience. In any culture, it's offensive to be slapped. It's an insult. Someone hating you with enough force to hurt you, they don't feel like the need to throw a punch in you. You're not hurt being knocked out. Because they know that you don't have the ability or the will to fight back. And then when I've been looking through the teachers of this, some people have really put an emphasis on a backhanded slap. Because, as you says, your right hand is hitting the right cheek. And for that to happen, you have to come across and slap backwards. And it was seen at the time as a sign of dominance. And you would give a backhanded slap to someone that you had dominance over. So masters would do it to their slaves, and Roman soldiers would do it to the Jews. And unfortunately, husbands would be seen doing it to their wives. So it's seen as someone having a sign of dominance over you, and it's seen as a real insult. So let's imagine this situation. You're at work, and you've got maybe a big staff meeting going on, and one of your colleagues have been asked to do a peer review of you in front of all the other people in the room. And it's not a nice peer review thing, because once they start talking, they let you have it. Every little thing you have ever done wrong, they hit you with. Accusation after accusation. They're always like, don't finish their projects on time. They spend too much time on the phone. They don't spend enough time on the phone. They wear clothes that are appropriate for work. They smell. It could be anything. They really lay into you. And it's just reason after reason. And within a few minutes, suddenly you feel utterly worthless and humiliated in front of all your colleagues. How do you react to that situation? Do we start throwing accusations back at them? Trying to make them feel the pain they just made you feel? And do we start a whispering campaign? A death by a thousand cuts. Um, do we get violent? Do we just shout them that they're a liar, punch them in the face? You know. Well, what about this scenario? 
that colleague who makes you do all the heavy lifting. You know, the one, the one that turns up the special project that's been given to them by their off. And they've explained that although the project's been given to them, they need your help. Sure, really just. But you know so well that you're going to end up doing all the work for this. And you know it's unfair. You know that really it's their job. But they have the authority to be able to ask you to come now. So again, how do we react in these situations? Well, Jesus gives us the answer. He says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And this doesn't mean we just passively sit by and become doormats for the rest of the world. We, we pray them. We ask God to give us compassion towards them so that we can show them how he sees them. We act like God towards them, just as previously he has already acted towards us and that we have realized. You know, God has always graciously and compassionately acted towards us. We stand before him and we stand before our colleagues as a physical, walking, talking example of God, just as Jesus did on earth 2,000 years ago. In verse 4, Jesus used the weather to show how gracious God is to us. It doesn't matter if you're wicked or good. The rain will still come. The rain brings life to the crops. And also the sun will still shine. That sun that helps the crops grow and gives vitamin D so that we've got good, healthy bones. And it doesn't matter if you're wicked or evil, you still get the same treatment. And that's how God's love works for us at the earth. And again, highlighting the contrast the church should be to the world. Jesus says, have a look at the Gentiles. Even they're able to love their own kind. But we're asked to love our enemies. Even though God created humans, and even it's just God created us, there is, everyone has the ability to love. And, and this Jesus to say here, the Gentiles, they're even able to love their own kind because of the similarity. And we're really good at forming groups that we fit into. We categorize everything, whether it's black or white, young or old, Man United or City, Mac PC users, employed, unemployed, or rich, you know, the list is endless. And we can all find groups that we associate with. And we can put our, we can easily put our love into those groups, because they're the same. But that isn't how God loves. God loves us, and he loves us, and he loves us. He never stops. He loves us enough to create us, he loves us enough to give us an amazing world to live in, and an awesome universe that is mind-blowing and huge. He loves us enough to give us the capacity to love the weak thing, but we can experience some of what he experiences. We continues to love us, be the one who love him. He continues to love us when we openly rebel against him. He denies that he exists. Just because someone doesn't believe in God, doesn't think about that too much. 
Yeah. And he loved us so much that he sent his son Jesus down to earth to walk amongst us to restore the broken bond between us and him and to pay the price of our rejection. And that is how God wants us to rub. And I know some of you might be thinking, well, I can't do that. I can't love a partner who's broken our marriage covenant. I can't love my boss who belittles me. I can't love the racist who abuses me. I can't love the soldiers that shoot at me. I can't love the youths who terrorise my street with their motorbikes. But you know what? We can. And we can because God has given us his spirit. And because the spirit that is in us is greater than that that is in the world. And what I just asked, if you're struggling to love like that, it can take some time to practice. Look around the room. We're, there aren't many of us that are identical. There aren't many of us that are identical. But we all have our differences. We all are different ages, different colours. We have different interests. Let's take some time as a church to learn to love each other so that we can then go out and love the world. Right.